This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Adventure Diagnostics. Jim Rhodes and Kent State. Other Yellow King settings. And the anatomical machines of Ramondo de Sangro. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting Plangea is coming to Kickstarter in September from Atlas Games. Wait. Didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter, September 7th, through October 7th. Sign up for your plain Gia Kickstarter launch reminder at atlas-games.com slash plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut and... Beloved Patreon backer J.P. Morale kicks off an all-request episode. Episode, episode, episode. And I will not do the air horn noise that I have learned to make, and then just as rapidly learned is super annoying. (laughs) But consider it air horn noised when I say, J.P. Morale asks, I would like to improve my homebrew adventure writing. The problem is often my adventures don't feel right when I run at the table, but I can't quite put a finger on what I didn't like. Is there a framework that I can use to translate these feelings into actionable feedback for myself? This, Robin, it seems to me is a fastball burning right to you. Right. Yeah. So I have written a book called Hamlet's Hit Points, which is all about building in the emotional ups and downs of a satisfying narrative into uh, your role-playing game. So if the problem is that you're not paying enough attention to or getting enough emotional modulation uh, from the players, if they're not engaging, uh, that uh, is a great starting point uh, to solve that particular problem. So if you're stacking up too many things that are too easy all in a row, which no one does, or way too many things that are too hard and the players get dispirited, which lots of people do, that is a solution to that. But it might not be the problem that you're looking at. And this is an interesting question because it's like, I think there's a problem, but I'm not sure what it is. How do you figure out what it is? So I would start by after uh, having a a session that uh, you were excited when you were writing it, you thought it was going to be really great when you ran it. It's kind of disappointing. You're not sure why. Take a piece of paper draw a a vertical line uh, down the middle of it and compare what you thought it was going to be like in your head when you were writing the adventure with what actually happened. And so uh, maybe there is where you could start to pinpoint exactly where it diverged 
from where you wanted it to be. Now, I suppose in some senses, if what you wanted it to be is something very specific that comes out in a particular way and has a, an outcome, you're disappointed because you're running a role-playing game and not writing fiction. But <laughs> I assume, uh, because you are a beloved uh, Patreon backer, that you're a sophisticated uh, GM and know uh, better not to be disappointed just because your players do something different than what you plan to make them do. So, Ken, what would you start to do to look at the things in, in each column and start to find what it is that's uh, falling flat? I feel like you also should differentiate between your own feelings of this doesn't feel like I thought it would when I wrote it and the player's feelings, because the players may have had entirely different responses either due to some, you know, misfire in the actual presentation of the scenario. They didn't know that they were trapped. They didn't know that it was a mystery, whatever. And that's just a thing that you correct by, you know, signposting it. Um, or it may have been, I felt that there would be this emotional payoff and it didn't happen. And that, you know, may be down to the problem with your running, or it may be down to the problem with the scenario, or it may be down to the player's individual responses, which is a uncontrollable for variable. So to the extent, and not every game group works this way, but to the extent you can go to your players and ask them, describe the, you know, emotional beats of the scenario. When were you happy? When were you unhappy? You seem bored and listless during the exciting part. What was that about? And then, you know, take their criticisms or feedback or discussion or whatever it is on board without pushing back during that because this is just a debrief. You're just trying to get the information. You've already established in your head, this didn't work. So don't go back and defend, oh, this is what I meant, because that will talk them out of having been, you know, listless. What you want is their raw feedback, if you can get it, in addition to the feedback they gave you at the table by looking at their phone or playing with the dice or whatever, instead of paying attention to the theoretically riveting part of the scenario. So... Involve your players either by remembering their responses in that solo feedbacking thing that Robin is discussing or by getting their direct feedback. And you may only be able to get that direct feedback from some of your players, which is still better than none of your players. If one specific player had one specific issue, definitely talk to them, especially if the issue was, you know, this went too far or whatever, because that's something you're going to want to address in future scenarios regardless. But, you know, the, the thing that you want to begin by looking at and doing it as soon as you possibly can in terms of this instant response to yourself uh, is also crucial because the longer you spend thinking about it, the more confabulatory the event is going to become in your head, which is another reason, by the way, to get player feedback as well, because that, oh, yeah, everyone was listless as opposed to, no, we just had that pizza before and I was feeling super stuffed, but the game itself was really exciting. It was all that was keeping me awake. Those are, you know, the player could be, you know, have their eyes closed for either reason. And you want to get that feedback from them to the extent you can. Yeah. Some players are super undemonstrative and will assure you afterwards that they had a great time. The question then becomes, were you helping any of us to have a great time? <laughs> right, yeah. Or were we just all forced to project our energy toward you? And this brings me to an older book of jamming advice that I've done that breaks things down in a, a different way, which is Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, which is uh, from Steve Jackson Games. And the idea there, and I've revisited this in several other formats, is 
identify what your players want. A shortcut to doing that is to break them down into certain recognizable types that recur over time and space and gaming. Because, you know, there's only X number of things that people are looking for in a role-playing game, and uh, lots of different people are looking for different ones of those things. So another way of determining why it didn't feel right if players were listless and unengaged, if that was the problem, is did you hook them in? Did you give them a reason to be uh, not just excited on behalf of their character? You know, you can very easily create a, you know, so there's a classic example of, you know, you were given a shipyard uh, by your uncle that you never knew and you show up and then you find out that the shipyard is being undermined by centipede men. Then that gives the character a reason to want to do things but is the player interested in that do they want to manage a shipyard are they angry at centipede men and would they rather be going and getting involved in intrigue or do they just want to skip the part where the shipyard is in danger and just get straight to the fight with the centipede men so ask yourself what do my players seem to want out of uh, adventures and does this have a little bit of everything for all of them so that's another question where you can sort of go through a list tick it off and go, oh, there's no intrigue for Janie this week. Uh, that's probably why it didn't come together because she's the one who kind of moves everybody around and she's make sure people get moving. And when there's intrigue to be had, she comes up with a plan. But there's this one just all turned out to be fighty stuff and she kind of clocks out when it's fighty stuff. So look at what your uh, players want and what they thought was going to happen versus what did happen. And did you set up expectations that you wound up disappointing? Or did you not create any expectations at all, giving them nothing to hook onto? Yeah, so you've got the comparison of what you wrote versus what you ran. You've got the telemetry from the players, either in person or by analyzing the player types and figuring out, did my thing that I ran feed those player types? And then I guess the other thing is, just try and uh, zero in to the extent you can on the moment when everything went south, or if there were two or three such moments, to try and narrow down any sort of diagnostic. And the you know diagnostic might be just, I didn't explain it right. It might be, it was at the end of the day and everyone was tired. You know, what goes wrong in a game session is like, you know, what goes wrong on a football field? There's a million possible things that can go wrong. And so... To some extent, the cure is not analyzed. The cure is, you know, get back on the horse and do it again until you're instinctively doing things you never thought about doing in the first place. I, I get the desire to sort of go back and, you know, improve in a, in a series of metrics. But at some level, the, you know, the art form is both improvised, meaning you can't plan for it, and collaborative, meaning you only have a certain amount of control over what happens. And then it's also very much, you know, day by day, moment by moment. Are you doing it on a day when your players are up and excited? Are you doing it on a day when everyone is tired? Are you doing it on a day that, you know, you just felt great because you had a really, uh, you know, great lunch. And so you're full of blood sugar and vim and vinegar. You know, those variables change so dramatically from game to game that the same GM can run the same scenario in some cases for the same players, although obviously don't run the same scenario for the same players. But I, for example, running the same scenario over and over and over again at conventions for Chaosium, you know, it, it plays all kind of different ways. And I didn't particularly change how I presented it mechanically. If you did a transcript of my delivery, it would be the same in many cases. But 
the individual players are going to respond differently. And the midnight scenario plays differently from the 4 p.m. scenario. It's just it's a giant complex cloud in the sense that there are a lot of different initial conditions and changing any of them changes the outcome in often very dramatic ways. Right. And one of the things you definitely don't control is how much energy all the participants are putting in. So if nobody is really stepping up to engage and throw you a ball, if you keep having to, you know, pull them in different directions, but there's nobody going, oh, well, let's do this instead, or let's all get together and do this. That's a uh, an energy dynamic problem, not a way the adventure is written problem. One thing that is often an issue with the difference between a written adventure and how it plays is that it's quite common to write a bunch of information that you find really exciting, backstory or culture or whatever, but not actually build in any moments where that gets conveyed. So you may know the complicated backstory of why the fire princess has uh, come to Ice Town, but if the players never learn about that, that's going to be disappointing for sure because you never got a way to introduce that. So I guess another way to go back to this sort of writing things down to see where you're going and comparing what you were thinking or not is you had this great scene that was going to take place, but it didn't. And did it not take place because you didn't give the people at the table enough information to engage with it? Is it because you didn't give them a reason and they didn't supply one? So think of all the big set piece moments and, and ask yourself, you know, why did this not go off the way I, uh, I wanted it to? And I think at that point, we're beginning to circle back and repeat things. And uh, we don't like to go in circles here at Ken and Robin talk about stuff. We like to go forward, forward, ever onward, even if that means we have to go through a commercial to get to a hut that waits for us on the other side. From the dread docks of Dilathleen to the poet-burning furnaces of Zar, you are having the weirdest of dreams. A dream of an otherworldly deal on Dreamhounds of Paris. The Trail of Cthulhu campaign that mixes Lovecraft's realm of oniric fantasy with the dangerous art of the Surrealist movement. Pitting Dali, Cocteau, and Magritte against the mythos just got cheaper. Dreamhounds of Paris by Ken and Robin and Steve Dempsey is 25% off at the Pelgrane store in print with PDF or PDF only. Add its inspirational fiction companion, The Book of Ants, and get 25% off that too. Only until September 30th. With the voucher code hashtag AntDream at the Pelgrane Press online store. The Stones are playing Paint It Black, and we're paying special attention to the uh, drum track in celebration of the uh, uh, life and work of Charlie Watts. But uh, also, this is a pretty common needle drop that will tell us that uh, we're not only in the history hut, but we're in the history hut that hits the uh, late 60s, or in this case, 1970, and an epical event that I think uh, you might want to deal with in your Fall of Delta Green campaign. And Brian, our estimable Patreon backer, expands as follows. I recently found out that Ohio Governor Jim Rhodes helped exacerbate the issues that led to the Kent State Massacre and got a pie in the face from upset townsfolk. How might a Fall of Delta Green era setting foreshadow his major flaws in regards to politics without directly linking him to the event. So, Ken, this is a, 
an, an epical event for uh, people uh, just a little bit older than our generation, one that filtered down very much into awareness for us. But uh, these days, I don't know how much uh, people uh, remember about it or, or know about it or have read about it. So I guess let's start with the big historical moment and uh, the Kent State massacre itself. Well, to begin with, uh, a brief pushback against Brian's information, the pie in the face I suppose technically comes from upset townsfolk, but it came in 1977 and it came from yippie activist Steve Conniff, who was upset and was townsfolk, but he was not townsfolk from Kent. He was townsfolk from Columbus, Ohio. It was at the opening of the Ohio State Fair. There was a controversy over Kent State University planning to build a gymnasium on the site of the massacre. People got up in arms about that as well they might. And Steve Conniff, in order to draw attention to that protest, hit Governor Jim Rhodes with a banana cream pie. And that was seven years after the event. So it's not it's not the good people of Kent became outraged. The good people of Kent, as I believe we will see, were pretty much pro-massacre, but Steve Conniff was anti. So there we are. Right. And, and points for doing a full pie and not just like a whipped cream on a, on a plate. No, he was, you know, you say what you want about the yippies. They did not half-ass their ridiculous protests. You know, you're going to nominate a whole pig, not a picture of a pig. You're going to use a full pie, not a, a whipped cream in a in a tray. He was he was getting it done, was our boy Steve Conniff. Anyhow, the Kent State Massacre is in 1970. It's in May of 1970, and it is in response to the protests against the incursion into Cambodia that Nixon announced on April 30th, 1970. The Kent State University saw protests against that. Uh, they had about 500 people have a protest Friday afternoon. They said, this isn't a lot of people. We're going to have a bigger protest on Monday. And uh, after they stopped that protest, the sort of riots and whatnot continued. There was vandalism all up and down the main street in Kent. Bank windows broken. Enough stuff happened. A small fires set. You know, we, we're all familiar with this. Look, Kent, Ohio, Mayor Satram panics at this, calls in the National Guard on May 2nd. Before the Guard gets there... The ROTC building, the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps building on Kent State campus, is burned down. Protesters had put a sign up by the building that said, why is this building still here? And then, you know, they answer their own question, or different protesters answer their question. The night of May 2nd, firemen come out to put out the fire. Protesters throw rocks at the firemen. They slash the hoses to make it impossible to put out the fire. No one ever catches the actual arsonists, and the National Guard arrive to this ongoing brouhaha and basically clear out the May 2nd riots with, you know, bayonets, basically. So May 3rd, that Sunday, Governor Rhodes comes to Kent and makes a big speech at the Kent, Ohio. I bet he de-escalates everything, right, Ken? Yeah, he settles it down with an apropos quote from Aristophanes. No, of course not. He, uh, he says, this is the most vicious form of campus-oriented violence perpetrated by dissident groups. You know, does the st standard outside agitators did this line that everyone does left and right whenever there's a riot in your city? He says, these people just move from one campus to the other and terrorize the community. They're worse than the brown shirts and the communist element and the night riders and the vigilantes. They're the worst type of people that we harbor in America. Even in 1970, I don't think that was true of the hippies, but Anyway, and I want to say that they're not going to take over the campus. So he sort of, you know, lays down a marker, implies that he's going to in invoke martial law in a state of emergency, does not actually do so. So there's more protests and rallies. Kent has a curfew. The curfew and the National Guard and tear gas break all of those up Sunday night. So 
tensions running high. Monday, the noon protest is banned by the university, but of course goes on anyway. And the National Guard is once more summoned to break up this unauthorized, let's say, protest. This time, the wind is blowing too strongly for tear gas to work. So they'd throw the tear gas and it would just blow away the other direction. The protesters responded with rocks and tear gas canisters thrown back at the National Guard. So the Guard clears the common, which is where the protest is happening, with a bayonet charge, but they get lost on campus because they are obviously from out of town, that being the whole point of calling in the National Guard. And so they get lost, they get tangled up with a bunch of protesters, and at some point, which is technically 12.24 p.m. May 4th, the guardsmen open fire. It is possible that an NCO fires the first shot with his pistol. He claims to have heard a shot. We do not know that that is true. Um, no one ever certainly caught a mysterious sniper or anything. He fires a shot. 27 other guardsmen fire shots, mostly from their M1 Garand rifles. Four students are killed and nine are injured. And that is the end. Basically, there is a moment where the students want to charge the National Guard and various faculty members come out and say, do not charge the National Guard. Everyone will get killed. They're not screwing around. The protest breaks up. And then, of course, after that, there is a gigantic student strike. Kent State University closes down for six weeks. There's another gigantic wave of student strikes all over the country. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young write Four Dead in Ohio about it. It's a big deal. And it's, as you suggest, a gigantic seminal event, because this is the first time, certainly, that student protests have been answered with rifle fire. And uh, even in 1970, that seems extreme. Nixon does everything he possibly can to say, well, you don't throw rocks, you won't get shot. That does not test well. And so he goes out to sort of try to talk to protesters. And of course, that works about as well as you would expect. So basically, this is just one of the many tumultuous evidences of generalized unpopularity that Nixon and Nixon's Vietnam policy get to deal with through the basically the whole of his first term. And then he um, uh, ends the draft, which is maybe what he should have done earlier. And that's what turns off the college protests, because suddenly they can't be drafted. So there's less skin in the game to go out and protest the war. But by then, the war is basically over in Vietnam. That's 1973. Right. So if you're going to pick somebody to go in and cool things down. Turns out that Governor Jim Rhodes, who is a rough-and-tumble guy mm -hmm. from the rough-and-tumble side of uh, politics, would not be your person. So he uh, showed up, he uh, tells people that there's an invisible enemy, and that obviously uh, increases the stakes uh, enormously. So uh, let's look at the half of the question that is the uh, give us a profile of uh, Governor Rhodes. Jim Rhodes, born 1909, so obviously at 61, not really into the hippies. Lifelong Republican, ironically, because his father admired uh, United Mine Workers le leader John L. Lewis, who was himself a Republican, because all the mine owners were Democrats in West Virginia. Dropped out of college in 1927 and opened a speakeasy. Uh, where he, among other things, it was called Gussie's State Tavern or Jim's Place. He rented stag films, which, of course, were illegal. He ran numbers rackets, which, of course, were illegal, and probably hosted a number of bookmaking operations. So he is a basically minor racketeer in Columbus with the campus as his turf. And as with many minor racketeers, he becomes part of the urban machine. In this case, Columbus, Ohio has a Republican urban machine, which is run by the publisher of the Columbus Dispatch newspaper, Robert Wolf. 
1934, Rhodes becomes ward committeeman, which is like the party person in charge of that area of Columbus, and then rises through the ranks, school board, etc., is elected mayor of Columbus in 1944, serves, I believe, two terms as mayor of Columbus. His signature accomplishment as mayor is to annex the suburbs of Columbus by threatening to deprive them of water. Basically, he says, well, Columbus has got all the water purification and filtration plants, so build your own or join the city. Yeah. Those are your two nice options. plumbing you've got there, shame yeah. if no water happened. No to water it. flowed through it. And that is why Columbus is the largest city in uh, Ohio in land areas, because Mayor Rhodes acted with, what should we say, forthrightness slash naked aggression to uh, <laughs> take them over. In 1962, he runs for governor. He's already tried a run uh, in 58 and lost. He runs in 62 and wins with 59% of the vote, serves two terms. So he's in his second term as governor during the Kent State massacre. Now, interestingly enough, speaking of the yippies, a yippie magazine called the Free Press or Yippie newspaper subpoenaed or requested Jim Rhodes's FBI file with a Freedom of Information Act uh, request. And according to his file, in 1963, he is identified as an FBI asset who is run by another FBI asset of the special agent in charge of Columbus. And that asset was Robert Wolf. So apparently, in order to keep running his empire without FBI interference, he has flipped, as is very much the case then and now. And so, according to the FBI anyway, uh, Rhodes is their man. He'll do what they want. In 1970, he can't be reelected governor because governors in Ohio are term limited, and he's campaigning for senator in the primary. And uh, two days after the Kent State shootings, he loses the primary to Robert Taft Jr., who is the son of the heroic and glorious Senator Taft of Ohio. Then in 1974, he sues to be allowed to run again on the grounds that it only bans two consecutive terms. The court says, sure, why not? is reelected in 1974 in a squeaker and serves another term after that. He then tries that again in 1986. And by that point, Ohio is sick of him. He is defeated and he dies in 2001. And that is the, the Jim Rhodes story is wire arounds, aggression and uh, racketeering. Right. So, so this is a complicated human story of people uh, with different beliefs colliding with uh, one another, sort of creating an atmosphere where a match can be lit to a, uh, ignite all the gasoline that uh, Rhodes uh, poured all over the place. But there's so much going on in it that I wonder where there is room for a fall of uh, Delta Green scenario. And I would assume that your answer would be to have this happening in the background while something altogether different is happening for the agents as they uh, go to Kent State. Is there perhaps a forbidden library wing at Kent State that they have to navigate their way toward to get a... Uh, a tome or artifact while all this is going on? Kent itself uh, seems to be a, a small, idyllic, nothing much happens there type place. There is a ghost that is reported from 1970, which is an interesting coincidence. And Akron, Ohio, which it is a basically a suburb of, has a number of UFO incidents, including one in 1969. So I feel like if you're looking for an excuse to send the agents to that area sending them to Akron to look into UFOs and then putting witnesses or other, you know, key elements of the case in Kent is maybe the direction to go with the ghost being tied in as some sort of specter or hologram or something produced by... Well, it's, it's 
Yeah, it's it's clearly the the ghost of the UFO alien that is being autopsied in the science wing. If you have a UFO alien and it lands near Akron, you'd send it to Kent State. And uh, clearly, your concern is if people are burning down buildings at Kent State, you need to get that body in order to make sure that Majestic 12 uh, doesn't get a hold of it because they're up to something nefarious. Because a, a realistic group of Delta Green agents, of course, is going to be uh, pretty right wing. I think players always play them the other way, as mm-hmm. if members of Fall of Delta Green are the good guys going out and doing good things. But there's no good guy in Fall of Delta Green. So I think that uh, might get you the, uh, the MacGuffin that gets them uh, not only onto campus while this is going on, but gives them something to do that actually relates to the events rather than just having you describe it going on, but having no actual contact between the big historical event and the uh, players, which is always sort of a drag because they don't feel like they have agency to affect anything. And the connection that they thought they were going to have with this event winds up being pretty thin. Yeah, You can certainly say that among the things that have got the radicals incensed is the weird secret military research, which is maybe, as you say, dissecting the UFO, or it might be that UFO parts have been moved to uh, the Liquid Crystal Institute in the chemistry building on Kent State campus, because the Liquid Crystal Institute is the just the sort of thing that Majestic would use to farm out alien technology into America's scientific infrastructure. So it might be that our Delta Green agents are investigating the ghost. They discover that the ghost is the ghost of a UFO alien. What's the ghost doing? Oh, he's still somehow connected to the Liquid Crystal Matrix from the uh, Mego craft that Majestic is attempting to analyze through one of their front groups in the Liquid Crystal Institute at Kent State. They go there, and sure enough, either because of sort of a, a quater mass in the pit, sort of whenever aliens are there, our aggressions get amped up, or because Jim Rhodes is merely you know, blundering in and making everything worse with uh, table-pounding denunciations of invisible foes, or because some mysterious third force is encouraging arson as cover for their own thing. One hates to believe that it is the Delta Green agents themselves that burned down the ROTC building as cover for a insertion into the Liquid Crystal Institute, but one can't say that wouldn't happen because it's arson, Robin, and that means player characters. <laughs> yeah, player, let's create a diversion. That might be the whole secret history right there. Right. Well, that, that would certainly give them uh, a... Uh, direct line into because uh, usually you say well don't you know don't have the mythos cause all of these events in uh, you know human uh, atrocities but in, in this case it's like well if the if you can kind of make it so the players do it that uh, that would be all, all the yeah. thing and and if you make a player fire a gunshot at twelve twenty four p.m on monday may 4th then you know my own group has accidentally burned the thresher the USS Thresher. So anything is possible in terms of horrible side effects. I I think this is an area where we are on the bubble of taste. And if you think that that is interesting to do, maybe it is. If you think that is tasteless to do, maybe it is. And this is an, I believe an individual handler call on the case of, do you actually accidentally trigger the massacre or just accidentally light the gasoline while simultaneously burning the ROTC building down? to set up the uh, preconditions for the massacre, right? 
We should also keep in mind that there's possibly a Trail of Cthulhu story in some film that Jim Rhodes rented out of Gussie State Tavern in 1929. And maybe you've got a Trail of Cthulhu operation that is rearing its ugly head in the modern day. And uh, the the film might also show ghosts or aliens or something else paranormal uh, that ties in. Right. Well, if uh, if buildings are on fire, we'd better uh, get out of here so the firefighters can take care of the history hut, make sure it doesn't burn down. So uh, perhaps let's head on over to a segment that doesn't have a hut at all. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Encourage us not to do our Neil Young impressions by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Neil Kaplan. Oren Gashuri. Paul and Cleo Bushland. Liz and Siski. And Phil Groff. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Jake B. asks mostly Robin, were there any additional settings you considered for Yellow King RPG? If so, how did you settle on the published four? So the answer is that I was asked to do a game based on New Tales of the Yellow Sign, which is my anthology of original short stories that all in some way relate to the uh, Robert Chambers uh, Carcosa cycle. And in that book, there are uh, modern-day stories uh, in our uh, recognizable reality, or a slightly weird version of our recognizable reality, where there's sort of monsters running around and people just treat them like droughts or heat waves or just some other terrible thing that's going on that you have to live with. And there's a couple that are set in an alternate reality where the Castain regime actually uh, took control in uh, 1920. And then there's a war story set in the alternate history that uh, may or may not be connected to that other alternate history. And that one in particular was in true Lovecraftian style. I had a weird dream that was very vivid and had specific plot points and images, and I woke up and wrote that dream as a short story. The one setting that uh, is missing from that uh, book of short stories is the obvious one that everyone wants to play when you tell them (laughs) that there's a Yellow King game, and that, of course, is Belle Epoque Paris. 
And so when Kat and Simon asked me to do a Yellow King game based on those stories, rather than perhaps doing the sensible thing and narrowing it down to the most obvious way of doing that, I decided to, hey, let's do something really ambitious because there's a great sort of kernel of an idea in the way that if you're hopping between different uh, realities or, or moving between them in a grand arc, that that allows you to play off and, and uh, follow up on things that you established with your previous characters in earlier settings and have them all sort of connect up and create a, a sort of a mythology of your campaign that is essentially you're laying Easter eggs for yourself. So given that, four was already plenty. And <laughs> if I had sat down without having been asked to base it on the short stories, I might have come up with a much simpler and I think ultimately less interesting approach but instead, I had the opportunity to do something really ambitious that swings for the fences and can be played in all sorts of different ways, including everything from one shots to the, the big four sequence arc. And that is an example, I think, of often if you do something that is just following your sets of ideas and doing what comes to you. And in this case, you know, 25 percent of it came to me in a dream. <laughs> it was not sitting down and going, well, uh marketing-wise, uh, how do we hit all the quadrants? Oh, an alternate reality war. That, that's the way to go. No, this was just straight-up creative inspiration that I then translated into a, another uh, medium. And I find that sometimes uh, when I sit down and try to create something that is, okay, well, what do people like? How do we make something that people most like? Let's create all these elements in it that people like. And sometimes people respond to that. But I think more often, if I look back at the things that I've done over the years, it was the completely uncommercial things that were just acts of pure creation that I then had to turn into something for an audience that are the things that people mostly remember. And that is, I think, an important creative lesson that goes beyond uh, the story of this particular game is that if you're looking to figure out what people already like and just do that, that's like, you know what people really like? Star Trek. <laughs> Work on the Star Trek license. <laughs> you know, if you want to do something that is creating an original property, make sure that, that the bones of what you're appealing to are something that appeals to you, possibly even a way that's kind of mysterious and enigmatic. And that means it is by nature a tough sell. But then again, everything that isn't an established property is a tough sell. And uh, often the things that I most enjoy working on are the ones that, you know, create new properties that, uh, you know, none of them Star Trek, at least not so far. But, well, you, uh, you did yeoman work that, on Star Trek, Robin. Don't sell yourself short. You were terrific yes, on Star right. Trek. Right. But what I'm saying is that, you know, none of the properties that I've, that I've created are, you know, even a rounding error compared to the, the great big ones. Right. No, they have not as yet been embraced by as many people as should have embraced them. You're absolutely correct. When you did Repair of Reputations, the scenario for Trail of Cthulhu, where in that creative process was that? Was that, oh, I'd better start thinking about the Castine Empire setting? Or was that more of a, I read Repair of Reputations a bunch of times because I wrote the sequels, it's rounding around in my head, and it's not directly related to Yellow King? Where, where does that fall? Yeah, it was sort of its own thing. And it, what it did is it, it established that there was a hunger for more Yellow King stuff and stuff that was kind of straight up Yellow King and didn't have, you know, Cthulhu and his buddies showing up and didn't have the the worm uh, version of Haster that we often see in uh, full-on uh, mythos stuff. And that was, uh, I was thinking that more just as an exercise in 
can you do a scenario that's a straight up adaptation of a really well-known story and still make it work? So the only thing about that is it leaves it as an open question as to whether the Castanes win because the player characters uh, have to make sure that they succeed or the, the, I guess you could say that that alternate reality is then uh, created. But I wasn't thinking it as a sort of a prelude to the Yellow King, but rather an exercise in, in adapting that uh, particular story. Now, having said all of this, there's no particular reason why there can't be more Yellow King settings, yeah. because the whole idea is that normally when you create an entirely new campaign for something, even say within Trail of Cthulhu, if you go off and play Dreamhounds of Paris, that's its own sort of self-contained thing that then takes you away from the rest of all of the Palgrain books and from sort of a mainline Trail of Cthulhu experience. But if it's baked into the concept of Yellow King that you hop around between realities and the characters are reflections uh, of each other. So the number of possible settings that you could tackle is as many as people are willing to go along with. And so we may reach a point later on where people, well, we've played all four of these, but we still like the Yellow King. What, what else can we do? And Kim, that brings us to the fact that you've been noodling around, I think as you've alluded to before, with a, a setting that appeals to you. And so did you decide that Jack London's San Francisco was interesting and then you decided to Yellow King it? Or did you uh, think, what setting would the, does the Yellow King need? And then somehow that flowed to San Francisco. Oh, it was definitely the former. That last gasp of American decadence in San Francisco with Jack London and Clark Ashton Smith both being part of the same writing group or writ large writing group social circle, let's say, around George Sterling, the decadent poet and generally messed up guy. That sort of San Francisco 1910-1912 scene was always very interesting to me, and I've been looking into it just on the grounds that Clark Ashton Smith is maybe, I guess, the least known of the Three Musketeers of Weird Tales. Uh, we have lots of people doing yeoman work on Robert E. Howard's life. There's at least two biographies of him. Likewise, Lovecraft, of course, is, you know, we're buried under textual uh, references, most of them made by him. We're good on Lovecraft, but but Smith remains more of an enigma. And the fact that he runs up to San Francisco, becomes part of this scene, and then flees it, you know, well, I mean, I'm not the first person to find that fascinating. Fritz Leiber used it as the whole jumping off point for Our Lady of Darkness, uh, which, of course, I read at an impressionable age and have reread many times since, and it is a masterpiece. And so that I think is the, is the thing that set the fire. And then I would run across more people that kept being part of that sequence, you know, not just George Sterling, not just Jack London, but, you know, Gertrude Atherton or all of these other sort of writers, many of them ghost story writers that were sort of flowing into that scene as well as, of course, the beginnings of American Rosicrucianism and the beginning of jazz. It turns out once it leaves, once it leaves New Orleans, it moves to San Francisco and uh, becomes, that's the first place that it really takes root after New Orleans. Because there's bars and money. There's bars, money, and foreigners. Ample foreigners. That's the other thing that they need uh, to get jazz really going. And so it begins to be spelled with a Z, for example, in San Francisco for the first time. So all those sorts of weird moments, the tail end of the great Barbary Coast uh, gambling and prostitution empire, that's about to go away. We have that last little gasp of old San Francisco in that era, it, it just got more and more interesting to me. And then 
I realized, oh, that would make a lovely Yellow King setting because you take your Paris characters, they've come back to America, and they have to team back up for one last mission. And of course, the last mission is, you know, William Winthrop running for president in 1912. And how do we deal with that? And Winthrop, of course, is the president who precedes uh, what the, the Castain regime, Castain right? Yeah. Regime. Yeah. And so this definitely is a setting that is very much most attuned to the Paris setting, and in that it is a real historical period where you're meeting the uh, historical figures and engaging with a particular place and time, whereas the other Yellow King settings are, two of them are alternate history, and the other one is our world with weirdness. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely sort of slots into uh, that. So, you know, when this comes to be, people can, as you suggest, have their Paris characters a little bit older, uh, just sort of uh, segue into that. Or, of course, like any of them, you can play it as as a standalone with uh, characters from San Francisco. Yeah, or a combination, or you can drop it into the middle as an unexplained flashback, because, of course, it sets up, you know, the Castain rise, or it doesn't, depending on what they do. And maybe they their play will influence what happens uh, in the later chapters. It, it's a great time. It's, it's good fun. Um, and I think that that's the, that sort of reflective quality I, I, I enjoy that. I like that possibility that you could have, you know, your your characters having learned things, then being changed and having to do another thing. That is a development you don't get as often in role-playing. Certainly, you don't signpost it as much, even though you get experience or go up in level or whatever else. That seemed like a fun idea. Well, this makes me want to go to a uh, Barbary Coast uh, saloon and watch the bartender pour some flaming drinks. But instead, I think it's time for us to... Uh wave goodbye to this not hut and go to another hut on the other side of this commercial. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once more to enter that most enigmatic of huts, the one that sort of exists in the space between all of the other huts and doesn't really have clear boundaries. But 
When we look over in the corner and see the Nordic alien and the gray alien sipping a kombucha together, we know we're in the Elliptony hut. We can confirm that by looking out the window, seeing an alien big cat screaming on the moor. And this time around, speaking of intersections between things, esteemed uh, Patreon backer Mysterious Musings writes, I recently read a bit on the anatomical machines of Romando de Sangro, rumored to be made of the veins and other bits of servants. The official story is that it's all fine silk wire and wax, but that's definitely a veil out. And it turns out that uh, good old Romando was uh, commissioning a whole lot of uh, wondrous and uh, crazy machines in the beginning of the 1700s. And uh, he's sometimes credited as being an alchemist, but he seems more like a, a, a funder, like a, like a venture capitalist of Baroque quasi-technological, quasi-magical items of which the anatomical machines, two of the three of which can still be seen today, and maybe there's a story in that, are comprised. So, Ken, tell us about this uh, remarkable figure. Okay. I think that he would have seen himself as both a alchemist and a promulgator of all useful arts and sciences and knowledge. So, six of one half dozen of the other. He's born in 1710. He is a direct descendant of Charlemagne. He is born in Tara Maggiore in Apulia, which is in the Kingdom of Naples. He's very, very smart as a boy, so they send him off to Jesuit College in Rome from age 10 to age 20. There he learns eight languages, among them Arabic and Hebrew. He becomes the Prince of San Severo on the death of his grandfather in 1726. His father has already renounced the title because his father murdered the father of the girl he wanted to marry. And the, the, the town of San Severo took an ill look at that. So he fled justice and then eventually plea bargained a system by which he would enter the church after having, you know, married the girl, which he, you know, did by elopement. Um, he marries the girl. His son will remain legitimate. That's our boy, uh, Ramondo, but he will give up his claim to the, to the principality. So his grandfather remains prince. And when his grandfather dies, young Raimondo becomes prince. His dad is in a monastery. So already hugger-mugger, church politics, and murder are part of his DNA. He comes back to Naples in 1730, reopens the old Piazza de San Severo, the palace that the family keeps in the city of Naples. His uh, schoolmate was the future Pope Benedict XIV, and when he comes back, to Naples, he befriends a young kid named Charles Bourbon, who becomes king of Naples in 1734. So he's very much part of the absolute upper echelons of society. And as a young punk aristocrat, becomes a Freemason, begins recruiting from all ranks of Neapolitan society. And by all ranks, I mean upper bourgeois and up. It becomes the Grand Master of the Masonic Lodge in Naples, possibly becomes a Rosicrucian at some point during this. We don't know. Uh, goes public in 1750, announcing that he is the Grandmaster of Naples. Uh, this is his attempt to get made Grandmaster of Europe. But what it gets him is excommunicated, because according to the Pope, you're not allowed to be a Mason and a Catholic, and certainly not a Grandmaster. Right. Well, th that's, a, that's a hierarchy yeah. that the Pope is not on top of. So. Exactly. Nope. <laughs> it's not just a hierarchy. It, in, it involves free thinking and Protestants. 
and it's just bad all around. So he is basically excommunicated. Charles uh, the seventh, his buddy says, look, I can't do anything about this. This is the, this is the order, but he rolls over for Charles the seventh, provides the names of all the members of the lodge. And when Charles VII looks down and realizes this is everyone who pays taxes in Naples, he bans Freemasonry in 1751, but he lets everyone off with a warning. There's no punishment of any kind for having been a Freemason. Well, he'd only just banned it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. What, what are we going to do? And so then good old Pope Benedict, you know, uh, writes to his old school chum and says, don't worry about a thing and revokes his excommunication. So one of the lessons here is know the Pope. Know the Pope. That is a good lesson. Um, so then he has bought in his uh, career, a Jesuit manuscript about the Peruvian quipus writing the knotted chords and writes a work called the Lettera Apologetica, which is about quipus as a, a repository of ancient wisdom, comparing it to hieroglyphs and ancient Greek and all the other languages that he knows, and how if you read the quipus right, they believe in God and Jesus and Freemasonry. And then the church says, ah, we saw that last part. And they put Lettera Apologetica, as well as many of his other scientific works, on the Index of Prohibited Books in 1752. In 1765, after Charles VII has moved on to be Charles III of Spain, the regent of Naples arrests him because uh, he has gone into debt, doing a lot of things that we'll get to very shortly. He renounced his title in favor of his son, Vincenzo, so that Vincenzo can marry a very, very rich woman. And then if Vincenzo is the prince, he can collect the dowry, and then Vincenzo obviously will kick a lot of that up to dad. But when all of the out-of-town guests show up armed for the wedding, the regent has him arrested for fomenting an insurrection. Again, all of his relatives and popes and things say that's bogus, and they get him released. But this is the sort of ever thinner ice that he's walking on. So he begins to sort of retreat into his palace and not take as big a role in politics because he's very busy in his palace inventing stuff. He is an alchemist by trade is the wrong word, but by avocation and invents among other things, a rainproof cape, uh, one of which he gave to the king in 1734 and then made an improved weatherproof cape in 1748, which the king wore while hunting. He made a bunch of different kinds of fireworks made new colors of them, made them that also emitted bird song, which is wild. He did a lot of good work in forging precious stones, perhaps maybe where he got some more money. We don't know. Made an artificial. He was in debt. So. Yeah. Uh, made an artificial marble to floor his palace with instead of use real marble again, cheaper does a alchemical version of the miraculous blood of San Gennaro and demonstrates it in front of the King in 1755. This, might have been a pushback on the church, or it might have been a sort of more of a Disney's Hall of Presidents type thing where it's an yeah, homage. An, an early franchise opportunity. Exactly. Every, every cathedral can have this. Right. He uh, developed a horseless carriage and a floating paddle wheel barge that was pulled by cork seahorses for great fun. He made a compressed air arquebus uh, during a period when he was a military uh, commander also invented a, a lighter alloy, longer range cannon that uh, men could carry on their back, which is quite the accomplishment for a cannon. Involved himself in miracle cures. At least two of his relatives and maybe other people probably cured of malaria, maybe TB, and then developed lots of other things that came out of various other things. So he made wax that came from vegetables instead of bees and silk from plants instead of silkworms, made him a clock 
that was programmable to play different tunes. And he made a printing press that could print in color and then put it in the basement of his palace, ran a publishing company out of the basement of his palace, and including (laughs) he printed Masonic texts and Galileo and other works that were on the Index Prohibitorum, and he did those anonymously. And then people would say, did you publish it? No, that was another guy with a color printing press in Naples somewhere. (laughs) He got his palace put on the Grand Tour, basically, and then wrote a a guidebook to it in 1766. So perhaps printed in color, printed in color, certainly welcome to rich tourists to come around and maybe they drop off a couple ducats for the, for upkeep. Who can say, according to legend, he created alchemical blood. He would burn crabs to ash and resurrect them with ox blood. He was a master of palingenesis, the recreation of vegetable matter from ash and desalinization. He desalinated seawater. He made a perpetual lamp, which was made with gunpowder and a crushed up skull. That's all you need. And may or may not have taught Cagliostro. Cagliostro said that he was taught by an alchemical prince in Naples. Uh, but Cagliostro, of course, was a big liar. So who can say? It was the other guy with the other right. color printing press. So the other thing that he's doing is that he is decorating and reconstructing the family chapels, which is known as the Capella San Severo. And he begins this about 1744. Supposedly, the Capella San Severo is on a site of a temple of Isis. Um, he commissions a lot of statues and paintings. The architecture reincorporates Masonic geometry. A lot of the paintings incorporate Masonic symbolism. Most famously, he built, he uh, commissions the veiled Christ by Giuseppe San Martino in 1753. Uh, there was a legend in Naples that he then had San Martino blinded uh, so that he could never make another statue. That is a lie. San Martino kept statuing until 1793. He was fine. In 1771, Our boy Raimondo dies of heavy metal poisoning, and the word is that as he felt himself dying, he ordered a slave, which who knows from where that came from, to chop his body to pieces and put it in a special resurrection box, but his family opened the box too soon, and all of his bits were like knitting themselves together, and he did, you know, one of those, uh, you know, Stuart Gordon-y moments, and he dies. His descendants then burned all of his manuscripts and destroyed all of his machinery, possibly because they didn't go to school with the Pope, and so they were in more trouble. They did not destroy all the displays in the Wonder Chamber, uh, which, of course, is what all the rich tourists were coming to see, among them the Marquis de Sade, who visits in 1775. And I should point out that Raimondo's body is not in its sarcophagus. Among the things that were in display in the Wonder Chamber are the anatomical machines that got us into this discussion. They are a man and a woman. The woman died in childbirth. There used to be a fetus also displayed among them. Uh, The fetus was stolen at some point in the 1990s, along with the feet of the man. They are real skeletons. Their organs are wooden. They're covered in colored wax. The legend was that Desangro injected his servants with embalming fluids and magic wax that killed them. And that's why the woman has got her arm up, you know, in agony and then had the bodies cut away and just put the, the blood system on display as, as part of his anatomical machine. People looked at the, at the blood system. They say, first of all, there are mistakes in the circulatory system. So it probably is not a single human circulatory system all injected with wax. Second of all, they clipped off a little bit in 2007 and it turns out it was built from wire and silk and wax. Now the notion of injecting embalming fluid into bloodstream goes back to the Dutch in the late 17th century. You're not supposed to do it to alive people. That was bad. Even in Holland, you're certainly not supposed to do it in Naples. 
It turns out that the anatomical machines were built by Palermo anatomist Giuseppe Salerno. Uh, Salerno had made two others for the Jesuits in 1762, and Salerno did commit suicide, admittedly, in the 1790s by jumping off a balcony. So Salerno has his own problems. The male uh, machine is made in 1756. It goes on display. When it goes up to Naples to be shown to the king, that's when Raimondo finds it and he buys it from Salerno, and then he commissions Salerno to build another one in 1763. They're put in the Phoenix room of his wonder cabinet, and then they're moved to the chapel in the 19th century. And that is what we know about the anatomical machines. Actually, we know a great deal more uh, because there are, uh, the paper of the of the people who studied them is is on the web right now, and you could read it. Right. But and the one thing that seems to be a misnomer is the machines part. Right. Because they're complex anatomical models, but they're not automata. They're yeah. No, they don't move around that we know of. Dun dun dun, etc. Dun dun dun. It's not Pirates of the Caribbean. So this is a case of somebody who's so interesting that he's already taken up all of our time for the segment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and could have taken up more. <laughs> yeah, but fortunately, the uh, scenario hooks are all pretty obvious. So uh, first of all, there's the hunt to uh, find the baby who escaped. I'm not buying this stolen story because that just means you have to track somebody down and find this in the cabinet and return it. Obviously, the baby was the first to gain animation because he's smaller mm-hmm. and uh, requires less magical energy. And uh, he was been sucking it up all these years. And it might be a long time before uh, either of them achieve ambulatory status. But uh, he's out there uh, doing things, causing trouble. I suspect he's probably, uh, you know, in league uh, with the organized crime. Uh, he's possibly a crime boss by now. And uh, that's the reason you can't uh, ever meet uh, the capo of uh, Naples in person is because it turns out that he's an ancient, animated, magical uh, dead baby. Right. He's, a, he's, he's, he's full of uh, alchemical waxes and evil. Uh, which suggests that he's in the nice black agents continuity. Right. Yeah. The, the, between the artificial blood and the uh, possible human circulatory system that is, quote, mistaken or vampirically different, and all of the other, you know, resurrection cabinet, etc. This really screams Knights Black Agents setup to me, that there is, of course, there's uh, the legend that we touch on in Dracula Dossier, that the actual Vlad the Impaler faked his death and died in Naples, and that his real sarcophagus is there. So, Raimondo di Sangro might be Vlad under a new name, because of course he's famously an alchemist by the time Stoker's book comes out, or... That that would explain his confidence that chopping him up and sticking him in a box would just be a minor hindrance. Exactly. Or, he could have been a vampire hunter, and that that's why he was examining blood and whatnot, and he was trying to build these golem robots to go fight vampires for him, and maybe they did, and then they would, you know, come back and he would take off their awakening skin and uh, store it somewhere, and then what happened was his his descendants, you know, burned the skin, so now the, the bodies can't come to life except someone found some and, as you suggest, reanimated the baby, but they're doing that not necessarily to let it run Naples as a crime boss, but to interrogate it as to uh, Raimondo's anti-vampire methodologies. So he could be a vampire, he could even be Vlad, or he could be a good anti-vampire guy. He is roughly the same period as our buddy Comte de Saint-Germain, who is also out there forging gems. So I feel like there is a strong Saint-Germain-Raimondo crossover episode to be had somewhere, and if Saint-Germain is a vampire in your 
version, there you go. And if uh, Raimondo is a vampire, well, also there you go. And that's why Saint-Germain is immortal. So you can tie lots of other stuff into him. Right. And that gives him a Mount Shasta connection mm-hmm. if you want to uh, get him over to uh, North America. And I think the uh, idea that he is uh, possibly a vampire hunter who maybe got turned at some point is fun to play with. So, for example, his compressed air arquebus. Well, why would you do that? Well, that's if you want to fire little bits of stick, right? Mm-hmm. Wooden, uh, sharp wooden bullets. That's uh, that's ideal anti-vampire weaponry, especially if you, uh, you know, dipped it in uh, that special blood that you make from burning crabs. So it could be that uh, there's all of this great uh, 18th century vampire hunting uh, tech that you're looking for and looking to update to the beginning of the 21st century. Well, between vampire hunting, alchemy, heresy, masonry, and secret Peruvian monotheism, I think we may have begun the process of beginning the process of discussing Raimondo de Sangro, which of course means we are now done discussing Raimondo de Sangro and must leave you until next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep the machine that keeps this show going in working order by joining such illustrious backers as... Terry Robinson. Thomas Edward. Rich Spainauer. Chris McLaren. And Adam Grotjan. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Festoon yourself with our latest design, Foxy Dragon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>